1: This is a CBC Podcast.
2: Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? We're a new show right here on CBC Radio 1, something CBC has never done before. Every Sunday this summer, we invite you to join us as we dive into a different aspect of climate change. We'll talk heat and ice, fossil fuels and renewables, floods and fire. But we're going to go at it from other angles too, a look at climate change through the lens of race, literature... And the arts, always searching for solutions and intimate personal stories of how the climate crisis affects us. And that brings me to this first episode COVID 19. You may have pandemic fatigue, but wait just a second. What if COVID could actually help change the future of climate change? When COVID came to Canada, planes were all but grounded, businesses and industries shut down, highways and normally busy city streets were empty people went home and shut their doors and across the country and all around us things started to sound and look different in a winnipeg suburb the usual cacophony of cars and trucks on the trans canada shifted gears to a twittering symphony in ottawa an unusual guest slipped into a backyard pool so i called my wife and said there's a moose in the pool We've
3: had lots of pool parties over the years, but not one with a moose or any animal.
2: (laughs) And in some places, they're hearing sounds they've rarely heard before. What you're actually hearing there are earthquakes as cars and people stay off the roads. The delicate instruments that are used to detect seismic activity hear tremors that we couldn't hear before. Around the world, it's also becoming clear that the skies are getting clearer. Air quality in some areas.
4: The European Space Agency says China experienced a 20 to 30 percent drop of the air pollutant nitrogen
0: dioxide
4: from between mid December to mid March.
0: Just last year in November, this is what the Delhi sky looked like. The level of PM2.5 and PM1 pollutants were.
2: So we've been hearing that if this pandemic has a silver lining, it has helped the planet. Well, Maybe for a moment. Uh, uh, Lisa, (laughs) so you're not buying into this whole idea of a silver lining? Maybe a bit, but not entirely, no. Okay. Uh, Everyone, Lisa Johnson is a producer with our show. But weren't you intrigued with the idea of it? Cleaner air, lower emissions? Oh, absolutely. When I heard about that this spring.
5: But A, of course, the shutdowns have been temporary. That's good. So many people are out of work. Um, But also... And this is the part, Laura, that blows my mind when I learned the numbers. As big as this massive disruption to daily life has been, the drop we've seen is not enough. Well, then tell me what the numbers are. OK, so I'm just going to talk greenhouse gas emissions. And during the height of the shutdown, when most of the closures were in place, daily CO2 emissions around the world fell an estimated 17 percent. And even as the reopening's happening, happening, like, that still makes an impact. So they're forecast to fall... for the whole year of 2020, which is the largest drop ever recorded, like more than World War II, more than the global financial crisis, largest ever.
2: Well, that certainly sounds like something.
5: Yes, but here's the thing. Even if the shutdowns continued, and we're not saying they should, that's not enough. To be on track for the Paris Agreement and avoid catastrophic
2: warming, we need a drop like this, every year for 10 years. Okay, that actually is really eye-opening. It shows we have a long way to go. But I think, Lisa, what people have been wondering about is whether this is a moment when things change for good.
5: Yeah, that question's in the air. You know, maybe we'll all be working from home like I am now. We really don't know whether this is going to be a pivot point at all when it comes to climate change. But it's such an interesting question that I decided to look back and see what's happened in the past. And Laura, I found a real-world example from not that long ago where what looked like temporary changes at the time actually had a lasting impact and helped improve air quality
2: in China. Oh, yeah. I, I actually remember um, it back in 2008 when China was getting ready for the Beijing Olympics. They closed the factories. They started restricting traffic. They were trying to make sure the skies were clear enough to compete. Yes. And of course, unlike the pandemic, those shutdowns were not sudden. They were years in the making,
5: dozens of rules and regulations and the closure of coal-fired power plants near Beijing for the Games, which became a big story around the world. And the Olympic Games are just days away, but a cloud of controversy is already hanging in the air over Beijing the smog. The air quality is and said at the to be time so bad, it was covered in terms of health for the athletes, and as a way for China, it's putting on a show. It's trying to save face while the world is watching. Then, you know, the cameras go home. The pollution went back up and it kept climbing. Here's part of a report from CBC's Andrew Lee in 2014. This
3: is a regular day in Beijing. You can't see the sun, but few notice. First-year university student Hu Xiaohu says of the air. It's much better than my hometown. It's that we can't see the sun during the day, he says, and at night,
4: I've never seen the stars.
5: And then it got worse. After that, in 2015, the government issued its first red alert for air pollution, which was essentially a state of emergency. Schools closed, factories closed, and Greenpeace
2: called it an apocalypse. So an apocalypse back in 2015, and that is years after the Olympic shutdown. So, right. so then, what effect did they actually have?
5: Well, the Beijing Games, those shutdowns, have been credited as sort of the start of a public awakening in China on air quality. At that point, it became clearer than ever before what that haze was that became part of daily life and that it could change. That comes from some published literature looking at attitudes in the city afterwards, also from environmental campaigners there. Okay, cool. So I'm um, Qian Liu. You can also call me Lin. I talked to Lin Liu, the senior campaigner for Greenpeace in Beijing on climate and energy and she also leads their air pollution project. Before
3: the Olympic, I think few people cares or even know about the air pollution. And uh, so we can say that that's the first stage
5: of the people awareness, you know, booming from the Olympic. So the first stage of an awareness boom. You know, factor in on top of that, it was things were getting really bad at that point. Pollution was linked to a million premature deaths in China each year. And for the first time, there was real-time data on what was in the air. The U.S. Embassy installed a rooftop air quality monitor in 2008 and started tweeting by the hour. And that showed incredibly high levels of something called PM 2.5, which is fine particulate matter that can get deep in your lungs and even in your bloodstream. So against that backdrop of awareness, there was another round of shutdowns for the APEC conference in 2014, at which point,
2: Laura, the sky even got a new name, APEC Blue. APEC Blue. That doesn't sound like a shade of paint I've ever bought before. What (laughs) does that mean? Well, it depends who you ask. President Xi Jinping spoke proudly
5: about it at the meeting. Here he is on state TV in translation in front of APEC leaders.
3: Some people call the clear Beijing
4: sky these days the Apac
3: blue. It's beautiful, but
4: temporary. I hope and believe that with persistent efforts, the Apac blue will be here to stay.
5: But of course it didn't stay. And I've been told on Chinese social media at the time it became a bit of a joke. Here's Lin Liu from Greenpeace. Let's say APEC blue.
3: Oh, oh, my God, that's really six years ago.
5: (laughs) It's kind of, how to say, a humor. (laughs) And I can kind of see that, like, sure, there's APEC blue skies when Barack Obama is visiting. But what about the rest of the time when people are like looking at a pollution app every morning to see if they need a mask or can open their windows? So that that raises the question, Lisa, has anything actually changed? Things have been changing. Most significantly was a government action plan that came in in 2013. It set targets for each industry and region to hit. And Laura, you and I know an action plan could kind of mean nothing. But in fact, in the seven years since, outside agencies, including the UN Environment Program, have called China's actions in this way a model on how to start phasing out coal. Like, bear in mind, China was burning more coal than all other countries combined. Here's Lourdes Sanchez of the International Institute for Sustainable Development in Geneva. She says one thing that China's done right is help workers transition to new jobs on cleanup sites and renewable energy. Actually, uh,
0: China, for example, they they have managed to peak their production and consumption of coal. So they can really be an example for many other countries that want to do the
5: same. Now, to be clear, China has a long way to go still in terms of coal use and air pollution and climate policy. But Lin Lu with Greenpeace says the really bad air days are much less frequent than a few years ago, and they're still pushing to make it better. Blue sky can be the new normal, you know, not only the... (laughs) Economic new normal, we are really looking forward the blue sky as a new normal. So, Laura, I wish I could tie this up in a bow for you and say, this is what we can expect in a post-pandemic world after these shutdowns. And, you know, of course, we don't know that. We don't even know when the pandemic's going to end. But I do think it shows that we should keep an eye out for which parts of our old normal just don't seem normal anymore.
2: Well, thanks for, for, for the look at the sort of reality check of all of this, Lisa. My pleasure, Laura. Lisa Johnson is a producer here with What on Earth? So the timeline for climate action only gets shorter as every day, month, and year pass. And now a new paper argues governments face a make-or-break opportunity to act as they figure out how to spend trillions on economic stimulus in the wake of the pandemic. Cameron Hepburn is an economist at Oxford and the lead author of the paper. Thanks for joining us.
4: My pleasure, Laura.
2: You say these government financial stimulus packages that are being created out of the pandemic can either reshape our low carbon future or, and this is another quote from you, lock us into a fossil system from which it will be nearly impossible to escape. What is it about this moment that makes it so crucial?
4: Well, it is a really vital moment. And the reason is that we are basically out of time uh, to turn our economies around. So we're at the point where we're going to have to be scrapping existing infrastructure if we are to hit a two degree target, let alone a one and a half degree warming target. And we're now at a point where we are bringing forward a vast amount of spending to ensure that the economy, the global economy, doesn't go into a deep depression. So what that involves is you know, this 10 trillion ish already spent to keep things Uh, businesses and people alive, there'll be another 10-ish trillion spent to recover. Uh, And if we do all of that spending in a way that is business as usual, that is fossil-fueled, then we'll bring forwards further capital investment that locks in further emissions for decades to come, which will mean that it's very, very difficult. You know, never say impossible because there are always... Uh, ways one hopes of uh, sorting these things out but we're getting to the point where even the most optimistic of techno forecasters would say uh, it's perhaps wise not to tread and at the very least it's certainly economically irrational to be going and building vast amounts of kit that you know you're going to have to scrap.
2: And you use the, the word kit, which I think people might understand here as being your gym outfit. You're saying in terms of the existing infrastructure, and you use that phrase, scrap the existing infrastructure. What are you talking about?
4: So I'm talking about the coal plants, uh, the oil fields, the um, gas power stations, the the stock of cars that we drive around, the stock of uh, airplanes that we fly in the ships the whole global economy is built upon a system of fossil fuel consumption and production and i'm not you know fundamentally critiquing it it's been a key source of our prosperity over many years especially in countries like australia where i'm from and countries where uh, countries like canada but but we do need to you know grasp the nettle and actually start to transition our economies
2: so I'm wondering what what does it look like? What in your mind does this recovery package include? Well, we
4: surveyed 231 officials uh, and economists, largely from central banks and finance ministries to get their views. And actually their views are not wildly different from my own. And it looks like if you're really focused on delivering economic benefit in the long run and in the short run, there are a set of climate-friendly policies that actually deliver that economic benefit. Uh, And they include building out that infrastructure, clean energy infrastructure, both the generation of the electricity from renewable sources, the transmission and distribution of more electricity because we'll be using it for our vehicles, for our heating, uh, and, uh, and the storage capability too. So much of the electricity will need to be stored in batteries or in, uh, in chemical form, but also means um, cleaner infrastructure so that we can have a less polluted local environment. So instead of driving uh, in cars that are polluting, we uh, have the infrastructure to walk or to cycle uh, more readily available. Uh, and so there's a set of infrastructure investments that need to be made. in in physical infrastructure. There's a set of infrastructure investments in natural infrastructure, so regenerating ecosystems, building out forests. There's a set of investments in people, so training up uh, the future generations of, well, and the current workers who've lost their jobs in the skills that are well-suited to the world that is coming, uh, rather than ending up with jobs in insecure economic areas that uh, that we know are going to have to be stranded early, scrapped early.
2: I want to go back to 2009, where when we saw similar calls coming after the global financial crisis, and when, when economists, to include Nicholas Stern, who wrote, is involved in this paper today, they made the similar kinds of recommendations. But the calls weren't heeded. Why is it still a solution a decade later? Isn't there something new that you could try?
4: Well, I think um, the calls were partially heated last time by most measures, you know, maybe 10 or or 20% in some instances of the stimulus packages back then were green. So it is reasonable to ask, will this time be any different? And the reason why I think this time is likely to be different is that with this, the elapsed 10 years, what's happened is that the public have become much more aware of the urgency and the seriousness of the climate and environmental challenges that we face. Secondly, you know, at some point, you've got to pull your head out of the sand and actually take action. Every government on the planet has had to submit as part of the Paris Climate uh, Agreement process, what's called a nationally determined contribution, which sets out that their plan for reducing their emissions. So in a sense, back in 2009, we weren't ready with a list of projects, a list of investments that we could just push the button on. Today, 10 years on, we've had that time to think about the roadmap to get to net zero emissions or at least to dramatically reduce our emissions. And so governments are ready.
5: Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, Plastic, no, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester. Tea or coffee. For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: I'm not sure that you're aware, but but this government, the federal government, has actually bought a pipeline that is being built and is going to be shipping heavy oil or bitumen uh, from Alberta to Tidewater here in Vancouver and then onward to markets to be sold. And one of the arguments the government makes for for buying this pipeline and and building it is because it will provide uh, profit that will then be channeled back into developing the transition to clean energy. What do you think of that?
4: Well, look, I'm not Canadian, I don't want to meddle in uh, domestic (laughs) affairs, but I I would say that um, the likelihood of economic returns from anything but the very cheapest forms of fossil fuel uh, is pretty risky. And, you know, we've seen that, frankly, in the course of the last three months where oil prices have reached historic lows, uh, even for... You know, particular short-run market reasons gone negative. And I think this is a sign of things to come that you can't rely on your know, oil prices up at $80 a barrel. Uh, an oil price that's compatible with the sort of climate that we're going into and the measures that will be taken to stabilize the climate is looking more like 20 you know, to $40 a barrel. Now, if... The Canadian Government uh, and the various parties involved can be making money at those kind of oil prices um, then you know fine I mean, there's a sense in which um, the uh, the fossil fuel that is generated and used will continue to be generated and used for the coming two or three or possibly more. Decades, uh, but it'll be increasingly smaller amounts, increasingly lower prices, and increasingly much, much harder to make any money in that sector. And when I say assets will be stra- scrapped, it's these sort of pipelines that potentially are going to end up being written off because they're delivering uneconomic fossil fuels to markets that don't want them. So that's the risk for Canada to think through. And I, I'm you know, not, not advising the Canadian government, but I, I certainly hope they've done that kind of risk assessment before buying the pipeline.
2: I, I just want to ask you um, something a bit more personal. Um, and I know you've thought about this. What is at stake for you and your sons if governments don't act or don't act quickly enough?
4: Yeah, well, we, we thought about uh, this sort of question before having our children and um, I think if we fast forward to a a world that's above two degrees, the hope is that at that point we haven't crossed an irreversible tipping point that means actually you know the the planet is increasingly uninhabitable. you would be expecting there to be uh, many millions of refugees at that point, you know, hundreds of millions of refugees. Um, I am hopeful from a very personal perspective that I'm raising resilient children who are adaptable and well-educated and able to contribute uh, when those times of pressure reach us. Um, and that's, of course, the job of every parent. Uh, but I think it's particularly important for parents now who are choosing to bring children into the world, that they take that responsibility pretty seriously.
2: How do you talk to your sons about climate change?
4: They know it's a big problem. Uh, They're aged three, six, and eight. So the three-year-old doesn't have much of a conception of it just yet, but the eight-year-old understands it, as does the six-year-old. And they... um, they know that dad's working on it and at the moment they're at the age where if dad's working on it, it's going to be okay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's a big load to carry.
4: <clears throat> well, I, honestly, I think all of us working in this area um, recognize that the there's a responsibility that comes with uh, having built up knowledge and expertise over over a number of years and it's uh, it's not one to be shirked. I don't think any any one of us is going to you know, save humanity or anything. But there's the collectively, as a, as a community of, uh, of scholars, of thinkers, and um, also political leaders, we, we actually do need to get this right now.
2: Cameron Hepburn, thank you for this. My pleasure. Hepburn is an economist at Oxford University, and it is one thing to talk about transforming the economy from the lofty towers of Oxford University. But does that idea have any support in the camps and on the front lines of those who work in the oil and gas industry?
3: Can you hear me? Oh, yeah, there you go. That's nice and loud. Well, I can barely hear you.
2: Uh,
3: turn. Oh, okay, all good now. Mom's saying, mom's Mom's doing things around my neck.
2: (laughs) So I'm I'm betting you can actually tell these two are related. Um, We caught up with Peter and Stephen Bueller in Edmonton. Peter is a pipe fitter.
3: I've been in the trade for 31 years now.
2: And his son, Stephen, has 11 years under his belt as a machinist.
0: Just by by virtue of living in Alberta, um, you really kind of only have the choice of working in oil and gas or just being unemployed.
2: Peter watched that economic reality unfold through the decades, and then he started reading.
3: I remember reading like the Chomsky stuff and then the, the Naomi Klein stuff, and it's like evolved to the point where you go, there's a problem. Like I, She was one of the first ones that mentioned about the, the issues with fracking, and that that's worse for the environment. When you have a natural gas. And though
2: he has stayed in oil and gas through both the boom and the bust cycles, he feels proud Stephen will have choices that he didn't.
3: I had these dreams when I was younger, and they, they kind of pigeonholed us and said, this is what you're going to do. Oil and gas refineries, this is your future. It's not the best environment to to thrive in. I know, like, for Stephen, it, it gives him the option to, you know, he can make things that aren't necessarily tied into or entrenched in, in the oil and gas industry.
2: Now, something interesting about stephen he's a machinist, but he's also a climate change activist, and he's already trying to do things differently.
0: You know, welding is welding, machining is machining. Uh, it, you know, I don't, I don't machine strictly for oil and gas. I machine metal into something that's useful. And I think that that's really how it goes for many tradespeople.
2: Stephen and his father talk about the future a lot. And Stephen knows change won't happen quickly, but he is hopeful government will act soon to aid in a transition.
0: Really what I would love to see is like massive government invest investment in green infrastructure, you know, making tons of publicly owned wind turbines, cooperatively owned solar panels. Um, you know, we're really recognizing in the in this moment of pandemic that... Um, You know, we really have been putting our money in in the completely wrong spots. And we really need something on, you know, a massive scale, you know, some some kind of a Green New Deal stimulus into the economy.
2: As Peter and Steven grapple with their reality, Jonathan Wilkinson is one of the people in a position to make choices. Choices about how and where to inject dollars to stimulate the economic recovery from the pandemic. He's Canada's Minister of Environment and Climate Change. And if the federal government wants to, there's an opportunity to spend on projects and in places that can stem the effects of climate change. I asked him from a safe distance at a seaside park in North Vancouver, if he agrees with the idea that canada can spend its way out of covid and into a clean green future
1: well i agree in part uh, i think that it would be a danger to narrow down too much on stimulus spending i think that climate is something that is very top of mind for folks coming out of this crisis is it a, it's a crisis that's coming at us and we all know it's coming at us it certainly may be helpful to uh, to start to change the track by using stimulus spending, but I would tell you that in the longer term, it's really about priorities. It's about actually focusing on reducing greenhouse gases and finding ways to grow in a, grow in a clean way going forward, and that needs to be a priority well beyond any stimulus activity.
2: It's interesting because uh, we've spoken to an Oxford University economist who's written a paper uh, along with Joseph Stiglitz um, talking about this very thing, saying that Putting any stimulus money toward existing industries such as oil and gas just doesn't make any sense because investment is going away from there. We've also seen a Goldman Sachs paper that was released a week or so ago saying by 2021 there'll be more investment in green and clean technology than in oil and gas. So why shouldn't you direct your money toward greener things instead of the oil and gas industry, for example?
1: Well, the Stiglitz paper, I've read it, it it, it makes a very compelling case as to how spending on a lot of the, the green kinds of activities actually provides a larger economic multiplier so that you actually get more bang for your buck. Um, And and it's quite a compelling case. And I would say that uh, on a go-forward basis, we all know that we need to address climate change. We need to be focusing on things that will also help us to create economic growth and activity going forward, and jobs. Um, And so uh, I do think that part of our thinking going forward, whether that's near-term stimulus or it's long-term sort of economic thinking, um, needs to uh, to look at a lot of the, the kinds of things that they're talking about, like transportation infrastructure and like uh, buildings and retrofits and all of those kinds of things. So I do think that's important. By the same token, I think it's very important that we also recognize Canada is different from England and it's different from France and it's different from Germany. And so finding ways to ensure that we have strong economic activity in Alberta and Saskatchewan, in Newfoundland and in New, New Brunswick and other provinces in this country is really important. And you would have seen one of the things that we did with Alberta and Saskatchewan Saskatchewan and to a certain extent British Columbia over the last little while was putting a big chunk of money into remediating orphan wells, which is about creating jobs, but it's also about addressing really pressing environmental issues.
2: You mentioned the orphan wells and the money that's being put toward that. Why is the government putting taxpayer into into something that industry should be paying for?
1: Well, I think that's a very good question. Um, These wells exist, so we can't just turn away and say they don't exist. Uh, But one of the things that we have been discussing with the government of Alberta and Saskatchewan and British Columbia is updated regulations to ensure that we're not creating more of these environmental liabilities going forward. So what the Orphan Wells program was about was, number one, trying to work to ensure we weren't creating more. Number two, cleaning up environmental liabilities that exist that are problematic for a whole range of reasons. Um, and number three, it was getting people back to work who in you know Alberta has, has been hit very hard, not just by COVID, but by the drop in oil prices. And so all this program did all three of those things.
2: Um, one of your former advisors, Eric Campbell, was quoted as saying COVID has put Canada into so much debt that any new big spending ideas are unlikely and that government's hands are tied. What do you say to that?
1: We spent a lot of money, have spent and continue to spend a lot of money to ensure that people can put food on their tables, to ensure that small businesses survive. That is appropriate, I think, uh, in in the context and it will allow us to actually have a reasonable economic recovery. We will need to be thoughtful and we will need to prioritize. There's no question about that going forward. And ultimately, we will need to come back to a fiscal frame that actually is sustainable over time. But I do think that, uh, that as we come through this, there will be a need for some investments with respect to ensuring the economy moves forward. Just as there was in 2008, I think it's a little bit different now than 2008, but, but uh, there will be a need for some of that. I think we have room to be contemplating some of that, but certainly we have to be worried about the, fiscal, the long-term fiscal track, and we are.
2: We mentioned some quotes here. I want to mention one more. It's the former governor of the Bank of Canada and the Bank of England, Mark Carney, he's also urging this quick shift, calling climate change COVID-19 on steroids. What's, what's the pandemic showing you about the possibility and potential for people's behavioural change on climate?
1: When we are faced with a collective crisis, that we can act in a, in a strong and a forceful way. And that gives me optimism in terms of how we can actually think about addressing the climate issue. I would also tell you all of the public opinion polling I've seen says that people's commitment to addressing climate change has gone up, not down. Um, I also think it's important, and I think Mark Carney is is a good uh, spokesperson for this, that we don't think about this just as something governments do, it's it's things that the private sector has to be involved in. Private sector capital is going to have to be part of this transition, and and individuals in, in making choices in their daily lives. I, I was speaking to the head of BlackRock, Larry Fink, last week, and, and to Mark Carney, talking about how we're in, increasingly, private sector companies are embedding climate risk in the way in which they think about investments. That's good, and that's important in the context of moving forward.
2: Now, Minister, you and I have talked about this before, but I'm going to ask you again. How much sense does it make? for Canada to own and build a pipeline that's carrying bitumen at a time when investment in the industry and the price of oil are falling?
1: Well I would say again that this is a transition. It's a transition that will happen over time Um, and, uh, and the pipeline fits in the context of that transition. This is part of ensuring that Canada reaps full value for its resources as we move through this transition but ultimately we all know that we need to get to a stage where we are not emitting more carbon than we can uh, we can uh, we can sequester and uh, and certainly in that context we need to ensure that we in that balance nature-based solutions in terms of Planting more trees and creating more wetlands and finding ways to sequester more uh, carbon in agricultural soils is part of it. But by and large, we're going to have to see a significant reduction in carbon emissions from any kind of the fuels we use.
2: If polling, as you say, shows support, and it has shown support going up for acting on climate change, why not act really quickly? Why not inject all of the federal stimulus that gets us to a greener future when you know you have Canadians behind you?
1: Well, as I say, I mean, right now we're still focused on the relaxation phase. Uh, We don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. We've seen countries around the world where they perhaps have reopened more quickly than we have here and have run into some challenges. Um, so we want to make sure that we're doing things in a thoughtful way. We also want to make sure that it's clear about which sectors isn't of not it
2: ready? It should be ready to go. These are, these are in some cases, shovel-ready projects you can move on. Next.
1: Certainly, and, and there are a number of projects that, that certainly could fall into that category. What I would say is it's important that as we move forward that we're clear about which sectors of the economy have been most impacted and which ones are going to need the most help. Um, and some of those will be short-term help and some of them will be longer-term help. There are some sectors of our economy that are going to take a long time to come back and so you know putting together a program uh, that is thoughtful but that also gives time to make sure that we're aware of where the lay of the land is from an economic perspective as we move through this uh, relaxation is is appropriate. It's also appropriate from a fiscal perspective because at the end of the day we want to make sure that we're putting resources to work but we're actually putting resources to work in a measured way. The, The fiscal capacity of the federal government and the provinces is not infinite and we need to be thoughtful about where we're placing the priority.
2: Jonathan Wilkinson is the Minister for Environment and Climate Change. Now, before we go, we have an assignment for you. We want to hear the one question you want answered on climate change. So send us a voice memo, email us, earth at cbc.ca, and we'll try to get you an answer in a future episode. And if you like this episode, tell your friends or give us a review. Next week, we'll look at climate change through the lens of race, specifically Canada's Indigenous peoples. Now, special thanks this week to Tian Wei in Beijing, Ross Bragg in Vancouver, Cecil Fernandez, Althea Manassen, and Ben Shannon in Toronto. And it is time to thank the small but mighty What on Earth team, associate producer Cameron Perrier, producer Lisa Johnson, Manusha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.
1: For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.